everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. I'm joined today by Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor, Dave Roman, Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. Sitting next to me here at the Boulder Gruppetto is pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Sitting, the, uh, sitting this episode out, however, is Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, Kaylee Fretz, who I think might still be drowning in rosé and French coffee in France. Or either, if he's back, he's either jet-lagged jet or just on vacation. Something. Something like that. Either way, he is not here with us today. (laughs) Uh, It kind of feels like it's been a really long time since the three of us have sat down. Like, has has it been like months, weeks? I I, I don't really know. I think it's been a while. I mean, Eurobike has come and gone. Tour de France has come and gone since we last sat down. It's been a while. The men's Tour de France, anyway. The men's Tour de France. Uh, Uh, Yeah, I think it's. Well, the while. Dave, you were here for a very brief. Well, you were here for field test, so that yes. has also come and gone. Well, at least at least the uh, our our shooting and testing part of yes. that. Yes, uh, I, I, I you, have uh, managed to see Zach in the time that we've since recorded um, I, <laughs> physically. I, yeah. Physically, yeah. I, I dropped into the shop just to inquire about how my how my bike repair is going, and uh, <laughs> the response was pretty much how I went, how I had expected, which is, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> so. <laughs> I was caught very off guard. Like Dave walked in, I'm like, I know who this is, but you're in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah, originally, had we had more time, we were going to have Dave just walk in and just like very casually ask about his repair or something, but just not really be him. Yeah. And it was funny. <laughs> but yeah, I was very like, you're not supposed to be here. And very, very surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pleasantly. Yeah. But. Well, unfortunately, we didn't have more time for to actually like sit down and have lunch or anything. Yeah. There was work. There was work to be done. We had to drive the steamboat. Yeah. That was a high oh, five wow. length visit. Mm-hmm. Literally, literally, like mm-hmm. you were here for really, really not very long at all. No. Just a few minutes. Uh, well, yes, we did. Ha- so anyway, yes, we have had a whole lot going on in the last time we've since we I don't know five weeks maybe six I don't really know. Um, sh- should we talk about Eurobike? We can talk about Eurobike. I mean. Zach, I don't think you went to Eurobike, did you? Zach did, did not go, go to Eurobike. I didn't go to Eurobike. So James, you went to Eurobike. I did go to Eurobike. This was the the first show, uh, well, the first year the show moved to Frankfurt. It used to be in Friedrichshafen for many, many years. Um, so yeah, it was. Kind of, I think a lot of people were pretty excited about this year's show, mainly because it kind of felt like the first one, I don't want to say post-COVID, but like it felt like the first one that was sort of normal, although... I've heard from an awful lot of people who yes. came home from Eurobike and had COVID. Most suddenly was um, not post-COVID. <laughs> no, no. It basically was a bike industry super spreader event. So I was pretty glad I stayed masked the whole time. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the favorite things you saw? Uh, well, it, I would say one of the coolest things that I saw in general was just the fact that there were so many exhibitors there this year. Mm. Um, it still was not a show for a lot of the really big major brands. They're still doing their own thing, but that's kind of how it's been for a long time. Yeah. Um, but there was a ton of small to medium brands. Was it still just all e-bikes? No, it was not all e-bikes, actually. I mean, there were a lot of e-bikes there, but um, I would say it actually wasn't even so much a, well, aside from cargo bikes, I would say there was less a focus on complete bikes as there were on just sort of everything else. It's like I feel like, was it, I think Ronin and Shadi went last year and were like- um, They went this year too. It was There's nothing, no real bikes. Yeah, well, there there was there were definitely some real bikes there for sure. Uh, quite a few e-bikes. I mean, e-bikes have basically taken over in Europe, no question. Um, there was an entire hall dedicated to cargo bikes, which was arguably my favorite hall in the entire complex mm-hmm. uh, for a few reasons, mainly because, I mean, I, I, I do like electric cargo bikes, but also because there, there is such a ridiculous range of creativity and uh, just kind of open thought and just ingenuity going on there. Just, it, it seems like there were just a thousand different ways to carry people and stuff around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how many of these companies will still be around in a few <laughs> years, um, but there were an awful lot of really, really cool ones. And I will say that the the outdoor test track was pretty sketchy. <laughs> like There were so many people out there on bikes that like they had clearly either just never been on cargo <laughs> bikes or they were on some other bike that they'd never been on. Or they're just going way too fast, or it was it was a disaster. I'm really kind of shocked that there were not more accidents. Yeah, were there were, were there cargo ambulance 
bicycles getting around for the test track? Or? No, no. But it did ride one cargo bike that had rear wheel steering. Oh. Uh, and that was very interesting. So if you could have purchased one item and brought it home with you, or if you could have taken one item and brought it home with you, uh, what would it have been? Uh, well, I don't think this would have fit in the overhead compartment, mm. and I didn't check any baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can uh, ship it. Uh, it would have cost quite a lot of money. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, the, the the people who run Ergon, uh, Frank Arnold specifically, he's the, the brother of Roman Arnold, who's the head of Canyon. Um, but uh, they have they've they've had this side project going on called Cago C A G O, and then they are basically trying to make like the ultimate front loading cargo bike. And uh, before I, well, I had a little, almost a whole day in Frankfurt um, before uh, the show actually started. So they actually picked me up at the airport and drove over to Koblenz. Uh, and I toured their, toured their kind of assembly factory over there and got a pretty, pretty good deep dive on that whole bike. And that thing is wicked cool. And it's definitely more expensive than the Urban Arrow that I have. But man, it's really cool. Like it handles really well, surprisingly for a big, huge front loading cargo bike. It hauls a ton of stuff. It's kind of got a modular box so you can configure it for passengers or stuff or whatever. It's all pretty easy to do. Um, it's, it's incredibly well thought out. Like they, they're running this, um, cable actuated steering setup, uh, which is necessary on those sorts of bikes since the, the steering axis is so far away from the bars. Um, and that's not necessarily a new thing in and of itself, but what's really cool is how they've kind of sealed up the whole thing. And, uh, the attention to detail is super interesting. Like the, uh, the, the, the housing stops are self-aligning, uh, before they go into all like the bell cranks and stuff like that. And those self-aligning little barrels all rotate on little Igus bushings. Wow. Um, it's, it, it's pretty excessive, arguably how far they've gone as far as sweating all the details. So having been in the front of your Urban Arrow now, uh, would I be more <laughs> comfortable in this one? Uh, I don't know, actually. Because the thing is, like, this is definitely, they put a huge focus on the safety of the passengers and specifically very small passengers. Um, so the passengers sit quite deep in that foam box up front. Okay. Uh, and like, you're pretty much, you're almost sitting on the floor. I think it would have been harder to, for an adult to fit in that thing comfortably. That said, uh, I did go for a ride in one of those things, both as the driver and the passenger, and it actually wasn't so bad. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So it was doable. Yeah, okay. So had I been able to bring that home, I probably would have. The problem is the way that they ship those things is they they basically ship them the way a motorcycle would be shipped in Europe, ah. and that's that would cost a lot to get over here. Yeah, not, not super feasible for low-cost uh, shipping. No, 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 no. Like you're mm. definitely not just like rolling that thing into DHL and being like, hey, here's my address. What do, <laughs> how do I do this? Yeah. 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 Not, not so feasible. Zach, you probably saw the coverage. Was there anything that you really liked the look of? I don't know. I mean, there's like, whether it's inter- like, no matter what the trade show, there's always very interesting things that you would never other see, like see otherwise. But for me, it all like, I don't know. It also kind of seems irrelevant these days. <laughs> like all of the new bike products, like, you've seen either under pro riders or they've already been product launched at a dealer event or like nothing like no one goes to Eurobike and is like, Oh my goodness, look at this new blah, blah, blah thing that no one has seen or heard of at all. Yeah. None of the major like, brands. Yeah. No one is releasing products anymore at these shows. Yeah. Not, so it's not me, a massive like, release at least. Yeah. It's not that exciting. Like there's cool stuff from brands you've never heard of. Yeah. And like probably never will again, <laughs> but it's like, super cool stuff that you see mm. but like at the end of the day it's not that exciting i don't think yeah i mean there there are a lot of little things that i saw that were pretty neat like brighton is getting into the rear facing mm-hmm. radar game yep. so it's nice to see a competitor to uh to garmin on that um abs braking uh is sort of becoming a thing now so that was that uh, was with, was it magura and shimano had magura and shimano yeah yep, yep. Um, so that's, that's a pretty cool thing to see developing. Um, I'm definitely curious to follow that and see where that goes. Um, the whole sustainability thing, I was surprised that there wasn't more of a focus on that at the show. Hmm. Um, especially there's been so much talk about that in the industry that, and there were definitely highlights here and there that I saw, like there was a, you know, like a kid bike company that's, that's making all their stuff out of, out of a, a variety of alternative plastics and like 
basically like based on bamboo and like castor oil and all this other stuff and um uh elastic interface technology the the company that basically makes everyone's chamois they have a line of chamois now that are basically made from like the scraps of other chamois um so like that's like stuff like that that's of, kind of, of warranty see, returns but, right slightly used no, oh, okay. no i guess i would uh, <laughs> no brown stripes on these, one, on these <laughs> yeah. ones thankfully, thankfully. Right. Mm-hmm. no skid marks um that's good there was actually a lot of buzz around those classified wheels uh dave i know you have a set in for review mm-hmm. right now yep so that's definitely a very small company i think they're belgian yep is that right mm-hmm. um and yeah, it's still to be determined where this company goes, but there was definitely an awful lot of hype around there, and there was that, that stand was always just completely mobbed with people. Because they're now working with different wheel manufacturers, right? Yep, they've got a whole bunch of different wheel manufacturers on board. Uh, they, ha- I don't know how they did this, but they have all sorts of like associated ex pros essentially associated with the company. Tom uh, among others, yeah, <laughs> yeah, myself. But they're not even just associated with. They're, they they like bought into it. Like they they're like they've invested. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I think, yeah, they've got like those, as you say, those pro ambassadors that are linked to the brand, which is probably why the booth might have been mobbed. Is my guess if if Tom Boone was standing <laughs> around there. But uh, the products so far going pretty well. I'm I'm impressed, and uh, I've been reaching out to other mechanics who have still installed it and people that have ridden it, and it's quite an overwhelmingly positive uh, feedback. So. Yeah. I am still so curious where it's going to go, though, because mm-hmm. you do still have to use their own separate shifter button. Yeah, uh, it cannot be integrated uh, officially anyway with uh, Shimano Di2 or SRAM Access. I, I have to wonder at some point if someone's going to develop some sort of hack where you can use those buttons to actuate that hub. Yeah. Um, but until that happens, like I, 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 it just feels like. SRAM should buy them or something. Yeah. It would be such a perfect fit. It's certainly something I'll, I'll cover in my review about where this could go, where it should go. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It's sort of, that's the the sticking point, I guess, at this point in time. The previous sticking point was availability, where you had to either buy a bike or you had to buy their own wheel set. So they fixed that. You can get it in all sorts of wheel sets now, or you can just buy the hub by itself as well. So they're definitely uh, removing the barriers to entry. But uh, yeah, that the shifter is still uh, is still a sticking point. So yeah, I guess uh, I, I just think there's li- it, I just think there's inherent limitations to how big this can get with the with the way it's laid out right now without mm-hmm. integrating it into a current control. But I don't know. People seem pretty hyped up on it, despite the that limitation and the cost. And I don't know. We'll see. It's an, it's a neat technology. It seems to work really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, you have a wheel set in for review right now, and we'll yep. see that review pretty soon. Hopefully. Hope. Yes. Pesky, uh, right, pesky well, field move- test review is getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on from Eurobike. So if if you want to see a whole bunch of Eurobike coverage, just head over to the site. Uh, if you want to see all of our Eurobike coverage, a really easy way to get there is just go to cyclingtips.com slash tag slash Eurobike. And that should get you to all of the coverage. There's been a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and the last round of coverage pr- might be up by the time this podcast goes live. So if not, it'll be up soon thereafter. But there's a whole bunch of stuff to, to take a look at. So go ahead over to the site and check it out. Um, moving on from Eurobike, we do have a couple of bikes that have been launched recently that have been pretty interesting, I think. Uh, I guess probably the biggest one has been this Cervelo S5. Uh, it's a new version of Cervelo's flagship aero road racing bike. Um, Cervelo seems to have taken pretty good advantage of the new UCI technical regulations uh, as far as reshaping everything. You've got deeper tube sections and like a, a lot more material around the bottom bracket. That whole area is really tall. Like you've got this nose cone on the fork and stuff. Um, big focus, however, has been on uh, simplifying the whole thing. So Zach, I don't know if you've worked on any previous S5s, but- Worked on many. Mm, and that front end seems- <laughs> not so fun to work on it's not that bad um, grand scheme of aero integrated bikes that's not saying much. i mean i also work on a lot of triathlon bikes so it's all relative the, right the bar is very low <laughs> <laughs> but uh so yeah cervello has apparently simplified a bunch of stuff up front there's much more simplified hardware it's not it, there, you no longer have to swap like different hardware for different uh stem heights if you want to like insert a insert spacers and stuff like that it's a lot easier to adjust the bar supposedly it's it's lighter um 
there's a better stereo stop in there so that you can kind of prevent frame da- frame damage a little bit better, which is definitely a big plus. Uh, there's more tire clearance too, because that was pretty so that's limiting. That's like, to me, the biggest benefit of the new one. Yeah. Like everything else is kind of minor refinements. It was very like tight on the old Minor bike. refinements that most people aren't ever going to deal with. It's your mechanic's going to deal with them, right? Like, but tire clearance is quite nice. Yeah. So the, they, you can now fit a 34 mil measured width uh, tire on that bike, which granted that thing's never going to be used for a gravel bike. Um, wow. Well, next year. Maybe watch out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, that would make sense. Uh, you could see it for something like, I could see someone using that for something like Belgian waffle ride. Um, or like any, any of a bunch of like mixed terrain riding. <clears throat> so that could be a super, super fast, uh, kind of all road bike, I guess, if you wanted it to be that. I mean, cause that's the same clearance that the Caledonia has, right? 34. I'm pretty sure. It's pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yep. that would be pretty close. Um, so yeah, it'd be heavier and probably wouldn't ride quite as well, but presumably much more aero. Um, obviously opinions will be mixed on what the thing looks like. I know I've, I've seen people say that it's like the ugliest thing they've ever seen. I've seen other people say that it actually looks quite nice, but you know, again, personal opinion. That, that handlebar with Trek's new ISO flow. Oh, if you oh, could combine oh, the that two. would be oh, amazing. Man. All that air <laughs> just flowing through your handlebar and then through your seat tube. That's the future. <laughs> maybe you could connect the two yeah. and have like you could have air coming in the front yeah. and then like you could have a turbine spinning to compress that air and then like some sort of like way to inject fuel and then like burn that whole mixture and then just have it come out the back <laughs> wow that's too much I was <laughs> too deep you're, you're, you're going places that I wasn't going I was just thinking you could stick a baguette through there and just <laughs> <laughs> party size sandwich yeah exactly Mm -hmm. anyway so one of those bikes i believe is heading over to our friend and colleague ronan over in northern ireland so we should soon see well he has some first ride review i guess uh on that bike up right now Mm. uh i think he'll have something more in depth coming up pretty soon so hopefully we'll hear from him shortly yes on that one uh and i think he's also soon to get his hands on the new scott foil which also launched recently um so he's he's gonna be busy He's going to be chock full of aero bikes pretty soon. Yeah. So good for him. It's fun to see a resurgence of aero bikes. It is kind of fun because, I mean, the thing is all this talk about how, you know, you hear oftentimes like, you know, such and such bike is almost as fast as a regular road bike or almost as fast as an aero. Like the the thing is aero road bikes, when you really get on like a real aero road bike. It's really fun. They're really fast and they're like tangibly faster. Yeah. Like very much noticeably. It's kind of wild. (laughs) It's pretty fun. Like you can just go faster. It's Pretty wild for sure. Uh, another new bike that just came out uh, is the new Envy Melee. So none of us have actually ridden this thing yet. Uh, Dave, you wrote the article on this one. You want to give us the rundown on this? Yeah, it's uh, Envy's entry into production bikes, which uh, basically means that they have a frame that's being produced in Asia. So it takes what they did with the Custom Road, which is an American-made bike. They make that one in-house, and it's custom geometry, custom paint. Kind of takes the lessons of that, but is uh, instead it's a monocoque design um, using aero features that we see with many competing brands already. And basically, yeah, it's just designed for mass production. So currently one colorway and you can change out the stickers on it to add some color if you wish. Uh, and yeah, aero, lightweight, stiff, all the above, uh, everything, uh, the likes of a tarmac, SL7 claims to be. Uh, I have to say that I am scratching my head a little bit on this one. Mm-hmm. Dave, who is the customer for this Envy Melee? Envy Melee, because uh, you know, like with the custom road, as you mentioned, you could get fully custom geometry and custom paint, and like it really. That I've ridden that bike a ton, and I would say that it is not necessarily any better than something mm-hmm. off the shelf that you can get like that tarmac or you know an amanda or whatever like yeah. it's, it's it's not super light like i would say the ride quality is not particularly extraordinary or anything like that but just the fact that you could get all that custom stuff and a custom fit on a bike that really wasn't any more expensive than a flagship model off the shelf from a big brand like that really seemed to be its appeal is um, this one decently cheaper uh like i think it was two and a half thousand dollars cheaper but it's 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 
roughly equivalent to in price to all the other brands you can think of, you know, Specialized, Trek, Cannondale. It's actually probably a little bit cheaper than an S-Works. Um, and you're getting, uh, I guess, a, a quite a desirable uh, handlebar stem out of it because Envy has that sort of um, brand prestige that, say, uh, a Roval doesn't quite carry. Um, and I think that's that's who it's for. It's for the person that has bought into the Envy branding and and believes that it's something of a you know a desirable product to have and they're looking at an s works they're looking at a a top end track they they might be looking at a top end cannondale uh and in that sort of price point they can now get another option which perhaps isn't something anyone else in their group has and i think that's from what i can tell that's probably envy's goal here uh i I think I wonder. I question whether they set their competitive market to be like against Pinarello and Colnago, and they're trying to go for that kind of prestige, or whether they're just happy to be considered a a, a competitor to an S-Works. Well, I mean, I guess one competitive advantage that they could have is if they're actually able to deliver these things. If someone wants one, that that mm-hmm. would be a big one. Yep. So, and that's the other thing is like, yeah, you can the the custom road has a has a wait time, and obviously the expense associated with it, and just the fact of ordering a custom bike, some people are shy of because they don't actually know what they want. Uh, so I guess this thing is, you know, it's ready on the shelf to to ride away with. I mean, I think we talked about it briefly when they released the custom one. But like, they keep coming out with new products, and you still can't really get wheels. Like, <laughs> like they they literally won't sell you wheels unless you've had a massive preseason order and the wheel is on that list of ordered wheels already. Right. Like they're that booked out, which is just like, that's your core product. Let's focus on that and being able to supply that before we come out with new products that are also probably not going to be available. Yeah. yeah. I guess from their point, like that, those wheels, all their wheels are made in-house in the US. So they're probably tapped out for production. Whereas this frame is a different production, right? It's like, it's not taking away, it's not filling up the totally. production or coming out an opportunity cost to the wheels because it's coming out of a different factory. But um, then you get this frame, Envy frame that's made in Asia. Yeah. And you want some Envy wheels for it. Yes. But you can't get the wheels. Yeah. I, I have heard I that you can get wheels, now. right? Like it's if you, shops have pre-booked them and like have them on the shelf, then yes, you can get them. But and yeah, you also yeah. understand what I'm the, saying. And the only shops that are allowed to sell these frames are like their premium dealers who are probably have stock booked to them yeah totally so it's probably there probably is wheels available if you're buying one of these uh if you're buying one of these bikes i'd imagine there are wheels but uh but yeah certainly for the smaller shops wanting to to get mb wheels or to get their hands on one of these frames I, I think it's it's not available to them well here's one thing i wonder about this thing though because um Again, there was some question about this when Envy came out with that custom road, but you could easily make the argument that there was some appeal in that or some some logic in that because, again, because of the whole custom aspect of it. Mm. Um, this thing is stock geometry, stock paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like you said, Dave, you can have your custom decals and whatever, but I mean, it's like you pretty much really want to have a silver bike. Um, but uh, the custom road was made at Envy's headquarters in Ogden, Utah. And as you mentioned already, this melee is made in Asia, presumably I'm China, guessing the same factory where yeah. well, I'm guessing it's the same factory where Envy's like forks and handlebars I believe and so. are made. Yeah. Um but you know, you said that one potential point of appeal for this thing is someone who's looking for a higher end bike that uh, has a more prestigious name as far as perception goes than, you know, the Trek specialized giant candle, whatever. Um but how much do you think it matters to people where the thing is made? Like, do you think people will care? I actually posed this question on my Instagram account the other day, and, and a lot of the responses were pretty interesting. I think it depends. I think I think some people care, some people don't. And I think the people that do care are just not going to buy it. But I think for the most part, I think the bike industry has proven that people don't care. Uh, Pinarello is not made in Italy. Not entirely made in Italy, at least. Um and that doesn't stop people from buying into that brand. And uh, Trek are no longer man- manufacturing in the US, and that doesn't stop people from buying those top end bikes. So I don't, I don't think it's going to impact them greatly. Um, and I think 
also the precedent had already been set before MB had done this, right? So like Pali, for example, like a famous American custom bike manufacturer, they've done this already. They've they've done production frames in Asia using the strong brand name they built in the custom scene. Uh, 51 out of Ireland also did this. Uh, they've got the new Assassin gravel bike, which is also a similar deal made in Asia, selling off a name that was built on custom bikes that were made in Ireland. Um, which funnily enough, always used MV tubes. And so there's kind of like a very close connection there, but it's, um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I think it's, it's a recipe for, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a recipe for profit that has already been proven. Uh, Zach, you had, you left a comment that I, I thought was particularly poignant on that post. I think you said something to the effect of, you don't really care where it's made as long as the as the disc tabs are are faced and straight or something like that. <laughs> yeah, very jokingly, well but also serious. Like I would, yeah. Like as I don't really care where it's made as long as it's made well. Yes, and like the finished well and kind of ticks all the boxes of a bike I want, whether like whatever those features may be. But like, there are carbon frames that I work on that are made in the U.S. that are really not made well when you compare it to like some semi-generic Asian-made frame that they just churn out thousands of them. Like, so just because where it's made, like, America's very patriotic, but, like, just because it says made in USA doesn't mean it's a good product or somehow better than something that's off a production line in Asia. Like, I don't know. Like, I would much rather have something made well in whatever random factory. Yeah, the the most... But I I think, too, that, like, it, for me, if I'm buying a production bike, I don't really care. But I also have a custom bike that's made here in town. And I think that's really cool because like, I have a relationship with those people. I'm friends with them. And I, like, I can go see the shop where it's made. And that's that, I think, is cool. And it's also made well. So I think on the custom side, it maybe matters a little bit more. Mm. But for a production line, I, I mean, who cares? Yeah, there, there were definitely a bunch of comments talking. Uh, definitely a bunch of comments from people who said that they really enjoyed the idea that they could speak to the person in in person uh, who was designing and making their bike. And they really took some pride in the fact that they could potentially just like go to the shop where the bike, like the frame was actually manufactured. There was definitely a lot of appeal in that. Um, but I would say probably the most sensible comments that I saw were mentioning something to the effect of it shouldn't really matter where something is like where something is physically made as long as it is made well uh finished well uh made by uh made by workers who are paid fairly and taken and well taken care of um like and and sold at a reasonable price yeah. so uh that seems to be the more common consensus yeah. um which i thought was pretty refreshing actually yeah and i think envy is probably from at least on paper has probably ticked those boxes. Uh, like the pricing, anyway. the pricing's not ridiculous, especially when you compare it to the other frames that it's being compared to. Like it's substantially cheaper than a Pinarello. It's competitive to the American brands that are also having their frames made overseas. Uh, and then Envy seems to have arguably done more with the design in-house than some of these other brands may or may not do. Um, like the top brand specialized Trek, Cannondale, they all have carbon engineers in-house that design the layups of their frames to get the frame exactly how they want. But you go a step down in the bike industry, a a tier down with the brands, and they all have engineers in-house, but then they'll they'll basically contract out the carbon layup design to the, often to the manufacturer of the bike. So the the very end, the final layup and like actually how the bike rides, the ride quality of it, is really left up to the manufacturer's discretion to to meet the right strength standards and and uh, ISO standards, um, and that's something that MB has done entirely in house. So uh, I think yeah, credit where credit's due. They've they've done their research on this. They've done their design on it. Um, so hopefully, and I'm sure they expect it to be um, deserving of their brand that they've built. I mean, it does look pretty nice, and I feel like. It does build on sort of the the, the design uh, language of the custom road. Uh, it's very very similar in that sense. 
Uh, and like you said, Dave, it's not it's not outrageously priced. Mm. Uh, it's it's quite competitive, expensive. Um, but it not. is going to <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I didn't I <laughs> yeah. didn't say it's like value oriented, yeah. yeah. but um, but it it is a competitive product price wise to a lot of the major brands. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like if you want something different, um, seems like a pretty viable option. Uh, I don't know. I guess we will see. Yes. Um, well. Uh, Moving on from bikes, uh, Dave, you just published, uh, I think just in the last couple of days, uh, a big interview that you did with Josh Portner from Silka. Uh, and this all came about because of a uh, a post on, I think, the Paceline forum. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Um, where he was essentially addressing head on uh, a lot of comments people were making in forums and whatnot about a change in Silka's or a recent change in Silco's return policy that a lot of people were pretty jarred by and, and clearly were pretty taken aback by. Mm-hmm. Um, and Josh's comments were really, really eye-opening in terms of why Truly. the company was making yeah. this change. Yeah. Uh, do you want, why don't you run us down? Why don't you run us through why, why I guess on the surface, the changes that he was making weren't basically just like some sort of like ruthless money grab. So I'd say if you haven't already, definitely do check out the article on the website because it's a long read and there's a lot to this and there's a lot of numbers and and insight that Josh shares that I won't mention here. But basically, um, yeah, they changed a policy that was money back guarantee for 30 days after purchase um, and they'd refund you. And like no questions asked. No questions asked. And they've had to change that. They now... Uh, it's no longer a money back guarantee. It's at best you will get a um, a store credit or a gift voucher. You won't get your money back if you if you buy something, uh, and that's also after they really inspect the product. Um, and all of that came from the fact that they've been receiving an increasing amount of fraud over the last few years. Uh, and by fraud, basically they they've been getting things like um, people sending buying latex tubes from them and then sending back their box of their latex tube box asking for a refund, but they've actually replaced the latex tube with a punctured butyl tube. Uh, or all, their products, they might get the, the usable life out of a saddlebag and they've torn the saddlebag, so they'll buy a new saddlebag and then attach the old saddlebag to the packaging and then ask for their money back. Uh, and Josh was basically well, saying- and, and, and basically just claim that they had just bought this new yeah, saddlebag. Correct. And they just don't like it. They, and, they just don't like it or that it was faulty or, yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, they, they'll, yeah. And then Josh also goes into detail about- even quite innocent things where someone might want to buy a saddlebag and they think they're supporting the company. So they'll buy every saddlebag that Silco offer, figure out which one they like best and then send the rest back. And basically Josh is admitting that once this happens, those saddlebags are used. They have to spend quite a bit of company time figuring out what's wrong with those bags. If anything has been done, that's, you know, against their policy, um, they then often the packaging's damaged. And basically you're saying often those end up just not being resellable. Um, so it's costing the company enormously. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's there's a lot more to the story. He talks about credit card fraud as well and the cost associated there. And uh, but yeah, it's quite quite eye-opening. Um, and it also covers the topic of Amazon and why he's selling on Amazon. So basically if uh, if you have counterfeit products of your brand appearing on Amazon, Amazon apparently won't really talk to you until you're a customer of theirs on their platform. So that's what initially got Silker on the platform. Um, but to Amazon's credit, they actually um, don't leave you out of pocket if they accept a return that turns out to be dodgy. Silker can provide evidence to Amazon that something dodgy has happened and Amazon won't leave Silker out of pocket. So... Yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, interesting insight, and I think the the feedback I've had from quite a few other brands that have read it was like, "Wow, it's like it's as if Josh is reading our inbox." These are like the exact <laughs> issues we're having. So it's, I think it applies to anyone in the e-commerce side, anyone doing online retail. Um, these issues are increasing. Uh, and it sounds like they're increasing because the likes of Amazon have made them okay. 
Um, well, and it also seems like certainly there is this growing expectation in the retail world now that um, sort of like, you know, customer is king, customer is right, no matter what, mm -hmm. um, which I think is certainly a very unhealthy attitude to have. And he was saying how like he gave this example of uh, a, a shop that he had, that he knew of where someone had bought a high-end bike and basically like stripped off a whole bunch of the parts and put on some other stuff on there and then returned it. And then essentially just like threatened to completely blast the shop on social media, which the person did anyway, I mm -hmm. guess, if the person, if the shop didn't just give all their money back. Yeah. And it's, and that sort of thing creates all these issues because obviously it costs the shop a whole bunch of money. Uh, and there are all sorts of avenues for people to just completely destroy shops, people, whatever on the internet and all sorts of various forums and stuff like that. Yeah. And the ability to fight back against that is it. It just takes a lot of time and money, and it's just kind of a bummer. I mean, Josh makes it. Josh makes it very clear that it is a very, very, very small minority of their customers who are creating a hugely, hugely outsized headache yeah. for them and a bunch of other people. Yeah, it's kind of insane how shady some of these people are, though. Like, it's yeah. horrible. I'd be curious to meet. So, like, I'm just. It's fascinating, kind of. Yeah. Like I don't don't understand. Like if you really can't afford a Silka saddlebag, that you have to go through all this trouble to return it. Like, why not just buy the fifteen dollars saddlebag instead of the eighty dollars saddlebag? Yeah. Like, well, it's theft, right? It's the same reason why people shoplift, I guess. But yeah. it's um, yeah, yeah. It's it, it was eye opening, and the cost is is immense. And Josh does kind of admit that as a business, there's no way around it. Like when you've got, especially in a pandemic, when you've got limited supply of these products the only way to make up your profit is to increase your prices eventually. And he gave an example with like um, the costs associated with these things. It's like if he had a hundred pumps and someone ordered one and then basically ordered one on credit card fraud and, and basically ended up stealing the product and then the person who actually owned that credit card then claimed their money back and the bank refunded that person their money and then insisted that Silka doesn't you know, get paid for that because it's a fraudulent purchase. Uh, Josh was basically saying that it then takes four more pump sales to make up for the loss of that one and then you still have to sell one more pump just to break even to where you were with that original sale. And he's like, in pandemic times, we're talking about losing 5% of our available stock with you know, some of these pumps. Um, so yeah, it's certainly quite eye-opening just how much of an impact it can have. It, it, there does seem to be a prevailing attitude among some people where I think a lot of people feel like it is okay to do stuff like this when they feel like they're sort of just like screwing over, like they're screwing over the man. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So the bigger the company, the more, I think the more common this is. Um, and I think Silka for better or for worse have, have come to a size um, and a notoriety where people are potentially seeing the company as, as someone that can afford it, that can afford to be ripped off or, or in some cases, perhaps these people in their own deluded way are thinking the company deserves to be ripped off. Um, right. So yeah. And it, it does seem like that's happening because speaking to like really small brands, like um, Abbey bike tools reached out to me and was like, this thankfully isn't something that we deal with a lot. It's like, we do get a little bit of the credit card fraud stuff, but thankfully we don't get like the fraudulent returns. Um, and I think that's just a, a size of the brand, right? Like Abby's still speaking to a very core customer, whereas I think Silka being on Amazon has started to reach a much wider audience that perhaps aren't necessarily a passionate cyclist trying to further these small brands. Yeah, I mean, because for for however big Silka has gotten, and I don't think Silka is still like I really don't think they're all that big. No, um, I think the perception I think of it, their I think their perceived size is a lot larger than their actual size. Yeah, I think so. But the fact that Josh, who owns the company, took the time first to make this post, but second to also talk to you about all this stuff, mm. uh, like in in a lot of depth. I mean, Josh is definitely quite generous with his time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that says a lot about sort of how big Silka actually is. Like, like if you make a return on Amazon, like Jeff Bezos is not picking up the phone and talking <laughs> to you about it. No, um, 
And you know, he mentioned he mentioned in his interview with you, like he he brought up uh, one of their, I guess, main customer service people, Martha. And like there were comments on your article talking about how like they have actually talked to Martha. Yeah. And they were talking about how how great she is as far as like you know their, her level of customer service and that sort of thing. Like you don't get that with big companies. Like yeah. like I can't call Ford or Toyota yeah. or whatever and like talk to like the owner of the company or like yeah. someone. Oh yeah, specifically high up or whatever. Like it's just not happening. No. And if there was like, an art- those companies are big. And if there was an article about their fraudulent returns, you wouldn't have people commenting, being like, "Oh yeah, I talked to their chatbot, nicest chatbot I've ever spoken to. They really <laughs> sorted me out." Um, so I think that just speaks volumes for a company like Silka, who are purposely trying to um, keep human to human communication. Um, that you can see it in our comment, you know, in the comment section of our article, there's, there's 50 plus comments. And so many of them were, um, positive towards Silka's customer service and, and firsthand experience. And, um, yeah, it was, it was great to see. It's good. Yeah. It's so as Dave mentioned, it's a bit of a long read, but it's not like, it's not like a Nick Clark, like two pots of coffee, three days read like from Ian sort of, sort of length. Uh, it's more like a, one or two cups of coffee sort of length, but it's, it's very much well worth reading. Yes. So I would definitely strongly recommend you head over to sucking tips and check it out. Um, well, should we move on to something more fun? We haven't done ask a mechanic in a really long time. Let's do it. Ask away. All right, as is often and usually the case, uh, our questions today are coming from Cycling Tips' Velo Club members. Uh, I've got a whole bunch here. We're not going to go through too many of these because it's a pretty long list. We've got it. The list of asking mechanic questions has definitely grown a lot in the five or six weeks or whatever mm-hmm. since we've done this last. Can uh, you do so like a Ask a Mechanic only podcast catch up? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> so like we, we can do that very easily. I feel very sorry for the people that ask their questions about a creaky bike five weeks ago and are still riding around <laughs> on it just waiting <laughs> just creaky. waiting I'm for just us waiting. to correct their bike <laughs> oh man well we'll we'll hopefully get to those sooner than later we might have to do another group episode next week we'll see mm-hmm. um all right our first question comes from daniel rosbach uh, he said he's been using wax chains for a little while now. Your favorite subject, Zach. Uh, he's been using wax <laughs> chains for a little while now. I noticed recently that there's quite a lot of buildup of wax, especially on the smallest cog where he mounts the chain after waxing. So does that point to a flaw in my process or is it normal? Um, Dave, our resident chain waxing guru, yeah. what do you have to say here? This this is something that was covered in the FAQ to chain waxing. So uh, if you haven't already, Google that to find it. It's on cyclingtips.com. Great website. It, um, it's somewhere in that 12,000 word article. It's somewhere in there. Uh, it's, it's relatively normal, yes. Um, the wax will flake off and can sort of bunch up. Um, basically just get yourself a, a small flat blade screwdriver or like a spoke or something and just very quickly backpedal your cassette or your chain and scrape that away. And that's basically all the maintenance. That's one of the the maintenance points that can happen with chain waxing. Um, personally, I'm not strong enough to use my 11 tooth cog that much that it becomes an issue. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it really just depends on your, what gears you're using most, but yeah, it can build up a little bit, but it's, it's very clean and very easy to quickly scrape away. And then, um, it really only happens with more of a freshly waxed chain. So once the, that excess wax is, has chipped off, it shouldn't keep happening. Yeah, and sometimes that sort of thing can happen to you if someone doesn't wait long enough, assuming they're doing like a crockpot wax sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes that can happen to you if someone doesn't wait long enough to ride their bike or kind of backpedal. Yeah. Um, if you don't wait long enough for the for the wax to harden, then it's a little bit easier for you to get some buildup. Yeah. So that's another potential cost. Too. Yeah, yeah. And or if you haven't done the prep right and there's still a bit of lube in there that it's 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 gummy, then that's the other sign. So I'd say if you're getting that buildup, if it's dry to touch and you can sort of put it on your fingers and rub it between your fingers and your fingers stay clean then it's just it's normal you just need to scrape it away but if your fingers get greasy then you probably haven't done the prep well enough all right next question comes from james Wynn. he's a regular on asking mechanic i would say uh has anyone tried having a frame aluminum frame specifically reshaped to accept wide tires that now that I'm nearly done with all my current projects, I can't help but start to think about my next one. He said it's a sickness, kind of like Dave's tool obsession. Uh, he said he's daydreaming about getting another Klein 
in bad shape, stripping it, having the chain stays bent a bit to take a 28 or 30 mil tire, and then having it repainted. Uh, it'd be quite a project, but so cool if I could pull it off. Mm, I'm going to go ahead and, James, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you a no on this one, uh, particularly on aluminum. Um, the thing with aluminum as, as a material, it, it, it work hardens quite quickly. Um, so you, while you could potentially dimple the chainstays to get a bigger tire to fit in there, unfortunately, as a result of doing that, the material gets quite a bit more brittle, uh, which makes it more likely that the frame will crack there. So, I mean, could you do it? Yeah, I guess you could, but if you're going to go through the trouble of doing that, uh, then I personally wouldn't want to do that to something where, you know, you end up damaging the frame in the process. Yeah. Also no, for all of those reasons, it'd also so, be ruining the beautiful Klein paint job. Well, but he was saying too, he was kind of like looking for that, like one where the paint jobs really beat up. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's not really, that's not irrelevant. Really that was more of a joke. Yeah. So there's not really anything to save do there. Do not but, crimp your aluminum chain stays. So yeah, I mean, so al aluminum frames do often have crimped chain stays from the factory already. Um, but that's usually, pre-heat treating uh, pre-heat treatment so that's not really something that you'd want to do after the fact so sorry james i would recommend against this one all right we've got a cush core question here this one comes from Stuart brown he just fitted two uh cross slash gravel cush core inserts on his reynolds atr x wheels uh he's having trouble seating the tire beads he said he can squeeze the sidewall and he can hear the air leaking out and he said both the air shot and the toe peak booster he has doesn't seem to be doing the job. Do we have any tricks to suggest for him? Uh, there was a little bit of follow-up on this one and definitely a little bit of back and forth on the Velo Club Slack channel with this one. Uh, one little bit of interesting info here was that he had applied three layers of stands tape to that rim. Uh, not really sure why. Um, my, I've got a couple things to suggest to you, Stuart. One is... Uh, it's unclear at this point how much pressure you were putting in there to try and get this tire to seat. Um, and oftentimes the pressure can be relatively high as far as what's required to get a tire to seat. Um, but one thing that I would really recommend is not using three layers of tape. Um, because, I mean, the tubeless tape seems like it's very, very thin, but when you apply multiple layers, it increases the overall circumference of the rim more than you might think. And that actually has a bigger effect oftentimes on how a, how tightly a tire fits on a rim than a lot of people might think. And then if you have a rim that's already fairly tight fitting to begin with, and then you add three layers of tape, then at that point, you can make it really, really hard to get a tire to seat. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely a big one. Um, off the top of my head, Cushcore, like they recommend, how they recommend that you install is start with the rim strip and then you put the one side of the tire on and then the other side of the tire on. I've had more luck putting one side of the tire on first and then sticking the insert in place and then the other side of the tire. So you could potentially set up the tire tubeless. So you've got the the bead on the rim and then pop off one side of the tire uh, and then install your Cushcore and you're then halfway there. The other thing that comes to mind, um, and I think this is related to James's issue, is uh, uh, James's recommendation is um, as far as easing the installation. Um, I've some of those inflators just don't always work. I've I've had them. I've had some tire combinations where no matter how many times I tried, I couldn't get such a an air shot or similar to work, and that's uh, that's why I wrote so many words about air compressors in the past. Um, sometimes there's there's yeah, you just need more air, um, more air volume, more pressure, and uh, yeah, or better airflow, and that's where your compressor comes in. Zach, do you have any input on this thing for getting the tire seat with Kushcore? I would think most likely it's not related to the Kushcore at all. Like that just kind of floats in the middle. Um, I would think three layers of tape, like James said, is probably too much. Um, otherwise, I mean, it depends if it's not seeing, like not inflating at all. Then I would take valve core out just to get more air in there. If it's kind of partially inflating and you can't just get that last bit, just keep pumping it up. Let it go. More air. More air, yeah. Don't, but, be, don't be scared. But take, the, take those extra layers of rim tape off first. Yes. Yeah, so you don't explode things off. All right. Next question. This one comes from Anthony Privatera. Get an aluminum seat post on an aluminum Trek Domani frame that keeps slipping down and then is also eventually creaking. 
says he has to torque the crap out of it to keep it in place way past the recommended five to seven newton meters. He's got light grease applied to the bolt as well as the seat post. Uh, what's going on here? What, what do we, what do we suggest to him here? I mean, I would say like if everything is the right size and like all the right specs and everything, then I would say if it's still slipping, I could try carbon paste. That's going to kind of give it a little bit more grip. Also, sometimes the seat post collar, it can be kind of thin, particularly lightweight ones, and they don't really put very much force on things very evenly. Um, so I would get like a, a little bit beefier and taller seat post collar that kind of spreads the load out. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me for this one is it's generally fairly unusual for an aluminum post to slip in an aluminum frame. Um, I think one of the first things that I would look at is to make sure the seat tube is reamed properly. Um, and I guess also make sure the seat post is, is actually the right diameter that it's supposed to be too. Um, so I would maybe head over to a good shop and see if you can get that seat tube measured. Uh, it gets, it may actually be slightly oversized. I mean, if that seat post is slip sliding pretty easily in and out of that seat tube, that is oftentimes an indication that you might not have a great fit in there. Um, and if that is the case, then unfortunately, you probably need to warranty that frame potentially. But I would, there are definitely other things that to, other things to try first. But again, like the fact that it's slipping at all is a little worrisome, and the fact that it's eventually creaking, uh, it just seems like there's more room in there than there should be. Yeah, um, I agree with all that, and I would say once if you've had chronic slipping issues, then it's probably going to be harder to solve it than a frame that's just starting to slip. And you then do what Zach and um, James just suggested. So if it's chronically happened, then you've probably, um, or, you know, you've probably at that point worn just enough material down that your seat post might be slightly now undersized more than it was, or your your seat tube's more worn out than than uh, ideal. So um, yeah, it can be once something becomes so chronic, and if it hasn't been fixed relatively quickly, it can actually just become more of an issue for future. So a few things for you to look at there, uh, Anthony. So hopefully, I guess, good luck with this one. Feel free to follow up with us and, and let us know how it goes. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that said, if everything is in size um, after you've had a shop check it, then um, it's one we've suggested before, but also the the additional clamp is another one to look at, um, being that this is a 27.2 seat post. Uh, James, what's the, what's the clamp brand that you mentioned make it? Uh, I think it was BBB. Okay, yep. I think they were. I think they were the ones who offered that. I yeah. mean, they, it it it's a somewhat common part that's unfortunately pretty difficult to find. Yes, um, yeah. and confirm. Um, but they are they are out there. Yeah, um, for sure. But that that's that's definitely another possibility. Yeah. Just like it's a little supplemental clamp that goes on the seat post itself and kind of keeps it from sliding down. Yeah. Um, so definitely a variety of options here. Um, I mean, replacing the frame would be sort of a last resort for a variety of reasons. Very last. Um, yeah. But uh, it seems like this should be fixable without too much trouble, seeing as how it's a metal-on-metal metal sort of interface. So, I mean, at the very least, too, you could try a different seat post. Like if this one is, let's say, a lighter weight aluminum one, uh, it's kind of as compressing and squishing almost, then you could do a little bit heavier one that's not going to, to do that. And usually, too, if the if the frame is slightly oversized or... You're like just clamping it way beyond where it should be to try and get it to slip. Like usually that seat post, you can just like run your fingers on it and almost feel it kind of being misshapen and ovalized a bit, or like pinched where the the clamp part is. Um, so if that's definitely the case, then I would I would try a different post. And sometimes too, I like I mean, similar to talking about using a different collar, but basically like there's the slot on the frame. If you put the slot on the the clamp opposite that, then that's kind of also doing a little bit nicer things to the seat post in terms of spreading the load out instead of creating the like dramatic pinch point on one side. So yes, definitely some things to look at here. Anthony, let us know how it goes. All right. Next question comes from Patrick Stanger. What are some typical solutions for excessive cable guide friction? Uh, he was working on a friend's bike this weekend and we determined that much of his poor shifting performance and poor shifting feel was coming from the friction created by the exposed cable running over the bottom bracket cable guide. Uh, he said he guesses you could frequently clean and lube that spot, but he was hoping that they have a that we have a longer term solution. Zach, uh, I mean, yeah, it's pretty common. I would say, I mean, used to be when bikes had mechanical cables and external cables, um, but yeah, it's just like it collects all the dirt and grime from your front wheel and just gets whatever road spray basically, 
Um, so yeah, you like every time, usually it starts to make noise because it's so dry and like almost squeaks when you shift. Yeah, it like creaks when the cable. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Cable. Um, but yeah, usually that's solved when you just wash your bike. And then some people like to drop some oil on there or like you just cable grease, like any kind of oil and grease type things to me just attract more grit and grime. So like while it might feel great the first ride, but then like a week later, it's not going to. Um, you can use like sealed cables if you can still find them. I know James really likes the gore stuff. I've got a whole bunch of money um, in my work. Like some people I've seen just put the little like plastic sheaths in there with the cable. The problem with that is if it's not sealed on the end, then like you're just moving the problem to inside that because you're getting road spray and then water runs down into the sheath and then you have a new point of friction. Um, so I would say the biggest thing is just like when you wash your bike regularly, just give that area a good scrub. And use high quality cables and like a high quality BB cable guide. Yeah, I would say it also really depends on the frame and the exact issue. So some frames will use like the old replaceable cable guide, like the, Shimano, the Shimano style, ones. like the blue kind of thing or, or a black one if it's um, another brand. And uh, those can wear out. That's kind of a wear item. So if it's one of those, then look to replace it with like a new Shimano one. And that will actually bring a whole new bit of life back into things um but if it's a frame that has its own cable guide that can be hard to source then um things get trickier and and there are some pretty bad frame designs out there where after enough time the the cable just starts rubbing on the frame and not the cable guide so that's something to watch for um in those rare scenarios there's not a lot you can do other than run like that that plastic sheathing that that zach just mentioned and and deal with the consequences of that ah you know if only they could like figure out a way to move all the cables inside Mm. <laughs> just make this part even harder to access mm. and get just as dirty <laughs> that was that was definitely meant to be uh facetious yeah i mean there are a lot of the internal designs like the because you have to wiggle around the bottom bracket and into the chain stays that like it wasn't just a cable guide where the cable touched it and ran cleanly to the trailer like did a little zigzag so you have all these like extra contact points of friction and yeah. just overall badness yeah yeah if you're having to use a braided brake noodle to guide your gear cable through a bottom bracket it's it's not yeah. a good design <laughs> yeah. no not not great zach do you remember the original niner carbon hardtail oh yeah those were literally one of the worst designs ever 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 yes ever there are still a few bikes out there so basically to explain basically you have housing from the shifter to the basically the head tube and then you have internal like bare cable going from the head tube to the bottom bracket. And then from inside the bottom bracket, there's a little cable guide that you can only access by taking the cranks in the bottom bracket out. And then the housing goes from there all the way to the derailleur. Inside the frame. Inside the frame. So like if you need to change a cable, it should be a quick thing, but you have to take the bottom bracket out, which on those frames in particular, it was like also designed so you could use a single speed. So like it was just overcomplicated and things got stuck and you had to use hammers and all this bad. stuff just to change the cable. That was like but a PF30 bottom bracket, wasn't it? No, it was oh, their it? own thing. Oh, okay. It was like a bigger version. Oh, okay. I can't remember what they called it because it, it was an eccentric Designed, thing. Yeah, for an eccentric, basically. But if you weren't mm-hmm. using eccentric, there were these other things that pressed in. And those, yeah, it was just surprisingly though, there are still frame manufacturers out there that do the cable from the inside from the BB with housing to the derailleur. It's terrible. Yeah. Zach, I appreciate that you remember that particular frame because oh, yeah. that, that one definitely stuck out to me as being yeah. an exceptionally bad It was bad. Design. And then they had the, their full suspension was like just as bad too. Thankfully, but, it's better now, I yeah. think. Uh, all right, let's finish up here. This will be our last question for this week's Nerd Alert. This one comes from Louis, uh, Louis Toomey. Uh, Louis is swapping a pair of Campagnolo Super Record shifters, mechanical shifters, I should point out, to new handlebars. And he's curious about... Uh, curious if there exists a torque L key with a short or angled head that is suited to this task. So uh, anyone who has worked on Campagnolo mechanical levers will remember that uh, those levers have ex- very curiously bad tool access for, yeah, for the, an aluminum for an aluminum bolt. Torx head nut T25. essentially that yeah. that uh, secures the lever to the bar. Um, like you can't really get a straight shot at it exactly, and like it's really hard to get to. That you have to like do all these contortionist bits with the with the, like with the and everything. Strip a little bit of the bolt away. Yeah, it's aluminum. It's yeah. just, anyway, uh, Dave, do you have any suggestions on what sort of tool 
Lewis might be able to find why, to ease his pain. Why, yes, I do. Uh, this is actually one I, I answered in our in the Cycling Tips, the Velo Club Slack channel. So I have the product number ready to go. Uh, you, you want a PB Swiss PB2411, which is a short key. So the the L part is, is reduced in length. So it's stubby. Uh, and it's at a 100 degree angle instead of a 90 degree angle. So the, the, the key actually sits slightly at a... Um, yeah, you're not trying to come in directly at a 90 degree angle. Um, and better yet, being PB Swiss, it'll fit that Torx bolt better than than most other brands of Torx key. So that is the tool to use. That, that doesn't answer his question though about using a torque wrench. Well, I, no, no, no. He he was asking for a Torx. Oh, tool, okay, I misheard you. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. If yeah, you yeah. want a torque wrench, then you're almost out of luck in that scenario because I can't really think of any <laughs> any torque wrench that's going to let you fit in yeah, there. That's I misheard. I totally thought torque wrench, and I was just like yeah. in my brain, like, what on earth would you <laughs> use this? Yeah. I, this does kind of bring up like, like a longer like. You can a, use a really, really long, a really long T twenty, but it still kind of comes at an angle. Yeah, it still kind of yeah. pointy part of the hood. Yeah, it, it, it's the thing is, this is a like if I they guess just a, moved the bolt like yeah. over five degrees, yeah, yeah it like, would have like made way more bolt, sense. The bolt is Shimano by has, the hood. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I'd say Shimano has done a much better job of uh, improving the tool access for that particular bit of hardware for their mm-hmm. their I guess last few generations of levers. But overall, I'd say this is like a really weird thing how. For some reason, that particular nut that secures levers to drop handlebars has historically often really had bad. just like really horrible tool access, yeah. and I don't understand why. Yeah, yeah, uh, and think. it has, and you've often needed like a five mil ball end, like a long ball end to to do yeah. a lot of those older Shimano ones. But the Campagnolo is in a, its own unique breed of bad. Um, this generation of Campagnolo, where they it's a T, yeah, like the T twenty five soft aluminium I, bolt that is completely blocked by the orange shifter it's uh it's, it's next level it's next level difficult to work on and then yeah so that's my recommendation a short stubby angled torx key from pb swiss all right well that is our suggestion lewis i would be curious to hear if you go ahead and buy that tool from pb swiss if this solves your problem because if this solves your problem I'm going to buy one too because I have the same issue because I still run Campagnolo mechanical shifters on my bike. So, uh, yes, uh, I would say, uh, normally I would say like if anyone at Campagnolo was listening to this to, to please rectify this on the next generation of mechanical levers, but those probably but won't that's exist. Probably never I think alternatively, a- you could take the bolts out and the clamp and replace it with a Shimano clamp and Shimano nut. Oh my God, that is heresy. I know, but it would be a five mil and then you could use ball end. And and it could be a steel bolt too. And steel, yes, but it's going to be heavier. Um, sorry, I'm I'm actually just reading the Slack channel, and uh, we've heard back from from Lewis. Is it um, Lewis? All good. the The two four one one works. How about that? Yeah. All right. Well, there yeah. there's your answer. I will. The go length ahead of the head and fit are done. perfect. It's much more reassuring tool for these shifters than anything I have tried previously. So I'll call that okay. a win. Okay. Problem solved. Ding, ding, ding. Well done, Dave Rome, resident tool geek. All right. We're going to go ahead and wrap up Ask a Mechanic here now, uh, which will basically be the end of our show. We'd like to finish out this week's Nerd Alert with a shout out, however, to the unofficial sponsor for this episode. So we mentioned a while back that we don't really take any ad money for Nerd Alert. You may have noticed that we don't have any ads on this show, uh, unlike our regular Cycling Tips weekly pod. Uh, and we certainly don't take any ads from any bike brands, but seeing how is this is still sort of a commercial podcast, uh, we figured we should run some kind of ad, like we should run something, because we feel weird otherwise. So we're basically just plugging local businesses related to our Velo Club members for fun, because why not? This is our podcast. We get to do what we want here. And this week, it's Pivato Masonry. Based in Buna, Texas, Pivato Masonry has been providing premium brick, stone, and tile masonry construction in Southeast Texas for almost 50 years. Velo Club member Kyle Pivato says that working for his dad's business back in the day is actually how he managed to buy his first mountain bike way back in 1999 and his first road bike a few years ago. So if you've got some masonry needs for your next home improvement project, go ahead and give them a call at 409-994-5655. Tell them we sent you. 
it's not the most asp- inspiring ad I've ever heard, but um, you get what you pay for. And given we're not charging for these, I guess the value is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm curious, do they deliver to Colorado? We've been wanting some stone for our yard. I don't know, but Zach, you know who to call now. You can find out. I mean, Texas really isn't all that far away. Maybe he's it's looking like to get out of the It's only like a casual 15-hour drive. Uh-huh. <laughs> very, very cheap to ship stone, too. Yeah, very. It's not very heavy. All right. Well, <laughs> that's all we've got for you this week. As always, if you haven't already done so, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. It does really help us out. Uh, and make sure you let your buddies know about Nerd Alert because we love hanging out with more bike nerds. And of course, make sure you also head over to cyclingtips.com for all the latest and greatest tech news, reviews, and analysis. With that, we will say goodbye and see you next week. Yeah. Bye.